Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Whether you're anxiously attached or avoidantly attached, there are two sides of the same coin. They both are rooted in a fear of intimacy. One fears that intimacy is going to suffocate them. And one fears that intimacy is going to abandon them. And so it is a dysregulation of, you know, the nervous system. And I think the goal is whether you're anxious or avoidant is to become more secure, um, not to become more like your partner. I struggled with my anxious attachment. I was probably very severe until I realized like it was ruining all of my relationships because I would sabotage. You know, once I realized that this was my pattern and I couldn't just keep blaming everyone, um, I really sought to get help on this. And I made it my goal to, to shift my anxious attachment. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Amy, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I got a hold of your book by way of your publicist. And when I saw that you had taken a science-based approach to breakups and heartbreak, I was like, yes, I want to talk to this person. Um, only because I tend to like things that are backed up with science and logic, despite the fact that love is this very emotional thing. And mm -hmm. so when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is a hell yes for me, because I really do want to understand this and, and dissect it. Because I've, like most people, I've been through my own, you know, share of heartbreaks. But so I, I want to start with what I think is a very fitting question, given the subject of your book. And that is, tell me about the first time you ever fell in love. Oh, the first time I fell in love, I was, um, you know, in my early twenties and I fell in love. Uh, I, I, I'm doing air quotes right now. Um, because back then I don't think I knew what love was, but I fell in love with this French artist and, um, you know, he fell in love with me just as quickly as he fell out of love with me. Um, but right after I bought us an apartment and he came home one day and he's like, I don't feel butterflies. I'm not in love with you. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. So that was kind of my first brush with love. And that's what made me dive into trying to understand the science and psychology of it because it was just the one area of my life I couldn't figure out. And I just had a, a string of heartbreaks one after another. Mm. So, I mean, you're of Asian descent, right? Mm -hmm. What did your parents teach you about love and relationships growing up? Because I, I really am curious to hear what your experience with this was like versus mine as an Indian uh, person raised in America. So they didn't really teach me 
by way of, you know, having conversations with me, talking about the birds and bees. Like my parents were immigrant parents that came from China. They worked their asses off and they weren't really around to parent me, but they had a very toxic relationship. And my father was an entrepreneur. My mother busted her ass helping him. Um, and she wasn't educated and he kind of always put that over her. And so, you know, what I witnessed growing up was two people that just didn't despise each other and, you know, had these crazy toxic fights every day, but stayed together because that's just what you do. Divorce just wasn't a thing in our Chinese culture. And to this day, you know, my dad's now 85 and they live in separate homes, but they're still together. And my mom still every day goes and cooks for him and cleans for him and takes care of him. Wow. So yeah. you know, it's funny because I don't think that that's isolated to just, you know, Chinese culture, because I think I see this in Indians too, right? Where you see people who stay together forever for one primary reason, and it's because it's so frowned upon in the community, like you get such a stigma when you get divorced. Like, I think, I, you know, I ended up writing this piece after the whole Indian matchmaking thing titled the South Asian arms race for, you know, impressive cultural biodata. And one of the things I said is that, you know, in, in our culture, we put an expiration date on women, which I think is awful. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, like mothers really put a lot of pressure on their daughters. Like, are you, is your daughter really going to find the kind of guy you want her to find if you're always treating her like she has an expiration date, like this is the opposite of unconditional love. And so, you know, I, I wonder why is that? Like, why is it that people, despite being miserable, will allow the stigma of a community that judges them to keep them trapped in a relationship they actually don't want to be in? I think that these beliefs often don't go questioned, right? When I look at my my mother's generation where she grew up without you know, she wasn't allowed to have an education because her parents made her work and take care of the family. Um, she didn't have access to podcasts and pop culture and Instagram feeds, you know, stating motivational quotes. Um, they grew up with these values that were deeply ingrained and you know, I'm not going to say all the values were, were terrible. Some of them are, are wonderful, right? Loyalty, commitment, um, family and, and sticking it through despite the, the thick and thin. Um, those are part of the values that I know my mother grew up with. And so it's not even a question. It's just not a shakable belief. Whereas mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I'm very privileged to have grown up in the way that I have and not having to worry about putting a roof on over my head, right? I have all these opportunities. I have all these different ways of learning. And I've also grown up in a culture in North America, which the individual was really prioritized. So it's about my self-care and, you know, what's good for me and my independence versus this major priority and focus on the we and the family. And I think that there's, you know, benefits and, you know, pros and cons of, of both approaches. Yeah. Well, I think the the thing that, that somebody said to me once is that, you know, in places like India, probably places like China, they make it, you know, way too hard to get divorced. And in places like here, it's almost too easy to mm -hmm. put an end to a relationship. And I wonder, based on sort of the research you've done, you know, what do you have to say about that? Because I mean, clearly, like there are times when it says okay, it makes sense to say, okay, yeah, this just is not meant to be like, this is bad for all of us. Um, and yet, you know, I think that that is one thing I see in Indian people is the resilience to fight through something that's tough that, um, you know, isn't necessarily, oh, let's just get divorced to hell with it. Mm. So I see in North American culture kind of 
there's two main approaches that really stick out to me. One is the, well, I have so many options. If this is, you know, once the, even like the chemistry and the lust fades, like that I'm not in love with you. I don't feel butterflies. And then you just jump on to the next one and you jump onto the next one, right? There's this kind of, um, this desire for the excitement and the passion and this kind of r- idea of the romance, which I don't think is grounded in reality, right? We yeah. now know through research around a year to two year mark is when the, that chemical cocktail starts to fade. And that's where you see the breakup and divorce rates are generally around that time as well. And so I see that. I also see people stay in really toxic relationships and not being able to get out. And, you know, they will stay with someone who's either emotionally abusive or even physically abusive. And I deal with a lot of people who are in this category. And I would say 30% of the people that I work with um, say that they are with someone who is a narcissist. Either they display characteristics or they have the actual, um, you know, narcissist personality disorder. And it's not that these are weak people. They're these people that are caught in a cycle and they're almost addicted to this intensity. They're addicted to the hot and cold. And so, you know, for these people, they continue to be like, I can fix it. I've got to get a return on my investment. And I have to really sit these people down and, and like ask the questions like, if you were to make this decision today, would you choose this person? And if you continue with this, you know, this direction of being in this hot and cold relationship with this person where your self-esteem is eroding every single day, where are you going to be in five years? What's it going to cost you? And so, yeah, I mean, there's kind of, that's like the, the divide that I see the extremes in North America. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that there are definitely two sides to this coin. And I, I want to come back to all of this because I know you went into depth about all this. So one thing I wonder, you know, so in, in Indian culture, there's one thing that's very clear, and that is that we put a high value on what, you know, the author David Brooks calls resume values and a low one, I think, on what, you know, uh, people call character values. So, you right. you know, uh, before we hit record, we had mentioned Indian matchmaking and somebody had interviewed me about this. And I, I'd said, look, you know, if you look at the scenes where they're asking people about their partners. There's that scene with Nadia where you'll notice she never mentions a single thing about careers, money, nothing that is a bunch of accolades. It's all about character. And I set up like that is literally why I think she was probably the most likable character on the show. Mm-hmm. Definitely more likable than I was. But um, <laughs> so the that, you know, and, and so I wonder, you know, growing up in Chinese culture, is that something that played a role because like in my mind uh, you know as much as i'd like to think i don't have any biases i know there are certain girls if i brought them home my parents would be like uh okay what the hell are you thinking Mm. Yeah, I think you make a great point. And those biases aren't even at the point where you bring them home. The biases can be so deeply subconscious that they're already there in your vetting process. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, (laughs) the career path um, that I've, you know, my parents encouraged when I was growing up was doctor, lawyer, (laughs) accountant, right? Like, you know, fashion designer, artist, like that's complete. Just no, those are hobbies. And that was not only what my parents expected of their children, but it was also what they expected in, in who we dated. And so I have two older sisters and one of my sisters, you know, she was a rebel and she dated the artist. She dated like the, you know, the, the guy who like smoked weed all day. And, you know, my parents completely disapproved. And the more they disapproved, the more she rebelled on them. And then my other sister kind of went the route that they want. She dated 
um, you know, Chinese guys and they were really like nice and sweet and like they were happy with that. And so I witnessed all this growing up and I, I think that it really did create a bias in me. So I only wanted to date people who had you know, who had money. And my idea was like, yeah, I'm going to achieve in my career. I'll do well in school. I'll get a job, but eventually I'm just going to be a stay at home wife. Like my, my husband's going to bring it in. And so that was my plan. And that was the plan. I, you know, I was dating to get married by the age of 15. Like every person, like, are you going to be my husband? Are you going to be my future husband? Like (laughs) my kids, like, you know, that was just, and that was normal. I never questioned that. And it wasn't until everything fell apart, like during one of my breakups later on in life that I just stopped. I'm like, wait a minute, like whose life am I living? Whose beliefs have I just kind of absorbed through osmosis? Because these are not mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I well, I, I really appreciate the fact that you said you were just dating to get married because I think that that's so common even in Indian culture. Because I I remember by the time I moved out of my parents' house, like I think you know it was quite late in my life um, when I finally was making enough money for my business. And I remember the first couple of months of dating, and I'm like, okay, I must be terrifying people because I basically it was like this pressure to be like, oh, every girl I go on a date with yeah. could potentially be the girl I marry. I'm like, this is a disaster. There's no way this is going to work. Uh, but one thing I wonder is, you, are you the youngest of yeah. the siblings? Okay. So this is another thing I wonder is that, you know, you witnessed some of this in your older sisters. Um, and I, I wonder how, you know, your own decisions about relationships um, based on birth order changed based on how you saw what folded unfolded with your siblings. Because my sister got married, I think, last year or what I keep, it was two years ago. And I couldn't help but think, I'm like, wow, this should be the other way around. I'm the older sibling. Uh, and oh. it's not. Uh, and, you know, this was like the bane of my mother's existence for a long time. Fortunately, I think my sister getting married got my mom to like leave me alone. Um, <laughs> everybody left me alone because Indian weddings basically just consume your life, especially mm-hmm. if it's the daughter getting married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in terms of birth order, like, yeah, I'm the, both of my sisters are married with children. And I think also I, I was born and raised in Vancouver and all of my friends here are married with children. And then I left to New York to pursue my career. And it was a total change of scenery. Like everyone there is single. Like if you were married with children, you were not in New York City. You like left to the suburbs and you never saw them again. So it really changed because growing up in Vancouver, I had a lot of pressure. Like I just wanted to secure my partner. And that was success to me. That was living the dream. And it wasn't until I moved out of the city, moved away from all of it, from family to friends that I was like, oh, I'm amongst other people where we don't talk about children all the time at our conversations. Actually, probably never. We talk about businesses and like, you know, series A. Like, <laughs> And so they're really different conversations. I think that just being immersed in a different energy really, you know, had a big influence on me because, you know, I'm, I'm now, I'm turning 39, um, and I'm not married. And, you know, my parents are super proud of me and they've kind of like, they're, they're not pressuring me at all because they're like, you know, you're doing really well in your career. We're not worried about you. And that's, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think my parents kind of finally came to the realization that like, if we try to force this, it's going to end up, ba- it's going to end badly. Um, cause you know, I see this all the time with Indian parents. They're just like so stressed out about their sons and daughters, you know, getting married. And it's like, okay, do you really think this is going to help them meet anybody? Yeah. 
Yeah. And they want those grandkids. Like that's, that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's get into the book because I think, like I said, what struck me the most was the fact that you took this very science-based approach to something that all of us experience at one time or another. And that is, you know, the pain of heartbreak. And, um, you know, and, you know, like I was 36 the first time I really experienced this, which was way late. But um, one thing that you say at the very beginning of the book is that the pain doesn't go away. Instead, it transforms. It alchemizes into something beautiful. It becomes a part of your depth, your compassion, your empathy to see another woman, I guess, or in case, in my case, also a man who's suffering from heartbreak and in one look, help her feel a little less alone. That shared humanity, that compassion, that we're all perfectly Im imperfect humans finding our path. That connection is to love. And I, I think that struck me because I think, you know, when we're like in the pain of heartbreak, we're just so angry and mad. I mean, I remember going to a doctor and, and you know, I, like one of my friends was like, this is like, because I, I mean, I sunk into a pretty severe depression. And I was, she was like, you drank a half a bottle of whiskey and smoked, you know, two packs of cigarettes in a day. She's like, you're punishing yourself. Mm. And so I wonder, like, why is it that that's like one of our common resorts is to try to numb, you know, whatever it is we're feeling. Yeah. I mean, I think that it doesn't help that in North America, there is such a judgment on our feelings of good or bad. Right. Um, and then there's also uh, a lot of pressure to be happy all the time. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and that's just not realistic. And, you know, I mean, just like even looking at your social media feeds, everything is about being happy. And I just think that that's the wrong goal because when we do feel the other emotions that are all part of the human spectrum, um, we judge ourselves. And I think that shame um, really keeps us in a state of suffering. I don't think pain is a negative thing. I think pain is a wonderful teacher. I think pain is, uh, is humbling. And, you know, I always joke, like never trust someone who's never gone through a heartbreak because mm -hmm. it, it, when you have gone through that, you, you experience this sort of, I think just dropping to this low makes you have compassion and empathy for other people that you wouldn't be able to get through just reading through books or, or anything like that. And that's also why even at my boot camps, any of the facilitators they must have gone through something super dark, like heartbreak or trauma and gotten themselves out of it because otherwise people can't connect with them. And so I think that we, there's so many things that we just need to change the definitions of, all right? And, you know, we'll talk about this later, but the definitions of love, the definitions of what success in a relationship is and, and, you know, our definitions of of feelings and, and not judging them. And I think we're also not taught these tools of how do you cope with these emotions in a healthy way? Um, I, you know, like I know at a young age, I never learned this in school. It was never modeled for me as a child. And so when I felt something, I, I just went into a hole. I went into my room and I was always taught that anger was not feminine and girls don't get angry. So I would always turn my sadness into anger, uh, my, my anger into sadness. And this is something common. I see, um, that women generally get angrier less and they turn it into sadness. It's almost like a reaction default. And so I, I think it's just really important that we start learning the tools for healthy emotional hygiene, um, preferably at a younger age, but it's never too late. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought up that we weren't taught this in school because I think, yeah, I think my most popular article to date was this piece titled what we should have learned in school, but never did. And I put interacting with the opposite sex in, you know, uh, in that article 
which was one of the most you know important things. And uh, you know, as somebody who teaches this stuff, you know, it always struck me that it was odd that something so fundamental to our existence is left out of our primary education. Because you know, like you know, if you're the nerdy Indian kid, like everything is basically, oh, that girl will never talk to me, and if she doesn't, that means you know I'm a loser. Um, you know, it's like we, as you say, we're, we're meeting making machines. So, you know, given the work that you do, what do you think we should be teaching kids about this? And, and why don't you think it's something that's in our education system? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's nuts that I learned how to dissect frogs, but I didn't know how to deal with anxiety, um, nor even know what that word meant until I was an adult. Because, you Um, know, that's far more useful in life, you know. (laughs) Totally, right? So, I mean, I think that the very first thing is, and whether you're a child or you're an adult, is learning when you feel the emotion getting in tune with it of where it is in your body. Because there's also, if you don't learn to do that, um, you can disassociate. So you disassociate from actually feeling it. So you don't even know, you know, is it in your heart? Is it in your chest? Is it, where is it? I think that's really important. And actually just taking the time to allow yourself to get really present with, with the actual emotion. And I think understanding that, your feelings aren't facts and that the feeling will hit its chemical peak and eventually subside like a wave. Um, and you're learning to learn how to surf those emotions as if you're surfing, which you're probably, you know, aware of because you're a surfer, but, you know, understanding like that, that intensity is eventually going to subside and it's not forever. The problem is when you feel an emotion and say you're very young, you feel an emotion and you're like, oh my God, this, this is going to be forever. This pain, this anger, whatever it is, it's going to be forever. I'm going to do something now. I'm going to react while I'm in this emotion and, um, I'm going to, pr- and that actually prolongs emotion or you add stories to the emotion, which prolongs emotion. And I call it feeding your emotional monster. Um, you never actually experience that like, oh, like I'm super mindful with what's going on. It's going to pass. I'm going to breathe through it. Okay, the adrenaline starts to subside. Okay, I'm all right. You you learn that oh, these emotions are are, are temporary. Um, but if you don't know that, and you kind of from a very young age start reacting to them and repeat that over and over through time, what happens when you're an adult? When you feel the uncomfortable emotion, immediately you're like, oh my god, I need to get rid of it. So you'll do something such as distract yourself, avoid, suppress whatever those coping mechanisms that you had when you were young child, if you didn't interrupt them and learn how to shift them, you're going to do the same thing. And that creates a habit and that creates a pattern. Mm. Wow. Well, so I think that makes a perfect segue to what I think is a perfect question to get us into the deeper part of the book. And that is, tell me about your own first heartbreak. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was living in Vancouver. I was, I had the perfect life on paper. I had a six figure job. I was dating this guy and I thought he was the one. Um, we talked about our life, you know, if we had children, how that would work. And I would stay at home. I would write on the side for fun and I was living the dream. And, um, you know, one day I, you know, find out that he cheated on me and my whole world came crashing down. Um, I had put so much of my identity in him and us and our future, our plans that without that, I just didn't know who I was. And I just crashed. I fell into depression. I stopped eating. Um, I had panic attacks. I had thoughts of suicide and I just 
I didn't think that the darkness was going to lift. I had never experienced something like that. And I couldn't understand because my whole life I was a high achieving person. I had good friends. I had, you know, good job. And I felt like I was going crazy and I couldn't get out of it. And that was really scary for me. And I think I, I just felt even extra shame because I'm like, this isn't me, but I felt like I was possessed and there was nothing I felt like I was doing that could make it go away. Um, so that's kind of the catalyst that made me start all of my work in, in dealing with breakups and helping other people with it. Okay. So sounds uh, like a similar experience to the one I've had where I just felt like this is never going to end. I can't stop thinking about this. It took months, you know, it mm -hmm. was, and I remember sitting in a therapist office and he was trying to explain, you know, the grief cycle to me. And I was like, we've been at this for three months. When is this going to be over? He was yeah. like, it doesn't work that way, dude. <laughs> he was like, yeah. like, he was like, you can't just fast forward through this. But mm -hmm. um, I think the, the place that I want to start is, uh, with, you know, rumination, because I think that this is really common. Like, yeah, I mean, I know it was for me, it was just like, and I think the thing in, in my own ruminations, and I'm guessing this is a pretty common thing, is I would literally replay every single moment of the relationship and be like, okay, I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't done this. And it took me months to realize, I was like, well, what does it matter? The outcome is still exactly the same, no matter how many times I replay this story. And you say, you know, that the emotional spiral worsens when we repeat the story over and over, walking, if not sprinting, on a vicious loop going nowhere. This is the mental trap of rumination, the story becoming a blur with no start or end. So the question is, then how the hell do you stop ruminating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> you have to think about it. When you're in a relationship with someone, um, and I have this exercise called the pie exercise, where you draw a circle and then you slice up that circle in, in slices of pie. And how much of that pie, um, meaning your headspace, your energy, your amount of time was devoted to the relationship. And usually this is anywhere from 50% to sometimes 90% for people who are more codependent. And so after the relationship ends, you have to think about this. You have like 50% of this pie or 80% of this pie that's now vacant. And if you don't strategically and proactively find ways to fill up that pie with things that light you up, you are going to use up that empty space with ruminating and thoughts of your ex. And so what I really encourage people to do is when you're stuck in this, in this vicious cycle of, of thinking trap of ruminating and stuck in the, I should have done this or maybe that, um, or blaming, these are all thinking traps that human beings are privy to. Um, if you don't find something else to get obsessed over, you're going to continue going that route. When you're in that thinking trap, you're in a disempowering fantasy because it doesn't matter what you do, you cannot actually change that outcome. You, you have no control over this person giving you closure or apologizing or any of those things. And so you're very disempowered. And so you stay in a state of suffering. But if you channel your energy and your focus into a new obsession and empowering fantasy, that will actually help you kind of shift your focus. And so what does that mean? Right now I'm working with someone who has been obsessed over his ex for a year. Um, and so our what my, you know, I, I, my challenge and slash adventure towards him was, you know, he really loves music and he's really wanting to play this kind of mini concert for his sister's, um, baby. 
Um, and so I was like, okay, every day, like, what are you going to do? You're going to practice. You're going to do this. And so what he's been doing is every day he's been doing these workouts. He's been practicing so that he has this deadline that we have set and he's accountable for for this concert he's going to play. And like, without even noticing, because he's so present in these activities, that amount of time that he normally is rereading emails and looking Mm. at photos and thinking and ruminating, he's now channeling to this thing. And there's a positive feedback loop because he's feeling good about it, right? Every time he gets a little bit better, he's like, oh, I feel good. And so this has an automatic ripple effect. Okay. So I, I love this. So I, I'm really glad you brought up the emails things. I was going to ask you about the social media thing. Cause I, I remember, you know, it probably was two to three months before I was able to finally stop stalking this person's Instagram mm-hmm. feed and be like, Oh, and the, and the, what I realized is what's even worse about that is then you look at each picture and you have a story that comes with each picture that mm-hmm. may not even be true. Uh, so what role do, does all of that, like, you know, our, our modern sort of technology play in all of this? Yeah. So when we do that, right, when we scroll the Insta feeds and stuff, you know, it's, it's emotional cutting, right? You're a bit, pretty much a sadist and you are whipping yourself. So I really try to tell people before you're about to engage in an action like that, just having a mental check and ask yourself, am I being kind to myself right now? Is this serving me? Sometimes that check alone will stop you. But if you're just mindlessly doing it without those checks in place, you're going to just keep repeating it. And something to understand is when you're craving checking their social media, this is your body craving a hit of dopamine. It's not because that person's so amazing. It's because you used to get all these chemicals from this relationship. And now that you don't have it, you're, even though there's been a divorce paper or there's a breakup, your body doesn't give a shit. Your body's in a state of shock. And he's like, give me those chemicals. So your ex is like a drug dealer and you really not need to kind of think (laughs) of them like that. And you just want your hit. And so, um, and, and something that's so important is yes, you want to stop stalking their social, but you have to understand why. And this is where understanding the science and the biology helps. You have, when you're with someone, you have neural pathways that have been wired together. And so every after a breakup, those neural pathways are still intact. Every time you are looking at their photos or scrolling down memory lane, you're building up those neural pathways. Now, when you stop and say, instead of, you know, reaching out to them, for some emotional charge, right? Sometimes we reach out knowing that we're going to get in a fight. We're still getting our hit. We're still getting endorphins from that. Um, sometimes we get addicted to the pain. So once you stop doing that and say, you're like, okay, I'm going to replace that habit and I'm going to, you know, put on a dance playlist and I'm going to dance or I'm going to play music, whatever it is. You now allow those neural pathways to start pruning away and that needs time. And so when I, I talk to someone so like this person I've, I'm telling you about who's been ruminating about their ex for a year, who has every single day been telling the story, rereading emails, trying to reach out. And we just started working with each other last month. I'm like, you actually just are going through the separation as of right now because you have been obsessed over this person. So you've been in a relationship with this person up until now with a person who's not in a relationship with you. Um, you know, every time you're, you know, blaming your ex, vilifying your ex and rehashing that story or hoping for them to change, you're just continuing being in a relationship with your ex. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow, okay. So that actually raises uh, another question. What have you seen as the differences between the way that men and women handle these situations, because, you know, I'll tell you, I think the, the thing that like, I remember the, like this, this breakup, like literally sent me to tears. And, and I remember, you know, having conversation on the beach and this girl basically more or less, and you know, so many words told me I wasn't making enough money to be with somebody like her at the time. And I cried. And after that, I was like, I am never going to cry in front of a woman again. And mm. that was the conclusion I came to from that, which was probably not the right conclusion. But what I wonder is, okay, you know, how, how does this differ for men and women? in terms of the yeah. meaning they make out of these situations and, and how they handle it. 
So I'll speak in general terms because, of course, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations. But in what I have observed and what I've researched, uh, there is a difference between how men typically deal with breakups and women. So men have a tendency to distract uh, immediately. So they might go on a dating app right after they might get into <laughs> another relationship right after. So there is this kind of not dealing with the pain and almost, um, disassociating from it. So when I speak to someone who's moved on right after, um, they're like, Oh no, no, I'm totally fine. Um, but they're actually not in reality because they're actually not in touch with their emotions. They've just been blocking it. What happens though, eventually what I've seen is those those emotions and that pain, it catches up to you. So it either catches up to them and then they either regret and they want to get back together with their ex or they're in a relationship and it's showing that baggage is showing up. So, you know, our, our emotions, they, the pain as well, they need air to breathe. And so if you're just shoving it down, eventually it's going to show up just in different places and, and in times where you're not expecting. What I find with women is there's more of a tendency to right away go inward and, and mourn. Um, and then reaching out to usually, you know, friends and talking about it over and over and over again. Um, and there's this rehashing of the story. Um, but what happens is the woman will generally move through it. Um, they'll go through it. It's terrible. They do the work up front. It's awful. And then they move through it and then they move on. And there's more of a, cl- a clean slate um, versus having to deal with, the, you know, this delayed reaction of the pain. Um, and you know, why is this, you know, a lot of it could be socialization, right? What you just explained was like very typical of what's called the skin knee effect where, you know, when a little boy falls down, skins his knee, you know, what, what is he told? Be strong. Don't cry. Get back up. Yeah. Whereas a girl falls is like, are you okay? Oh my gosh. It's okay. You're kind of coddled and it's, you know, you have permission to feel sad or upset and hurt and you get the time to, you know, get better. Whereas the guy's like, no. Oh, you know, zip up, buddy, be a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's really fascinating because yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Like I think that men, I think have this need to almost be stoic because like you said, it makes them seem, you know, weak. Um, which I, I think that this actually makes a perfect segue to talking about attachment styles, because I remember reading the attachment book and, you know, I remember looking at this and I was like, oh my God, I'm like, I have an anxious attachment style. Fuck. I'm like, I'm screwed. Mm. Um, I'm like, this is a disaster. Um, and so one thing I wonder, and I've asked one other person this, is it possible to change attachment styles? And two, if you do have an anxious attachment style, like, how do you prevent that from turning into something that ends up being almost repelling to another person? Because it can be, it can be, you know, come across as incredibly insecure. Mm-hmm. So yes, you can change it. I am an example of it. It's what's called an earn secure. Um, and about 20% of the population does shift their t- attachment style through time. And, and there's many different ways, right? So uh, your, your attachment style, you have to think of it. It's on a spectrum. And so for example, if you are secure with some anxious tendencies, but you know, you have a great group of friends, you, you love your job, you're working out all the time, you have community, you know, and you're dating someone who's secure as well. That anxious tendencies might not rear its head as much, but then maybe the pandemic hits, you lose your job, you don't see your friends, you're not working out and you're, you're the situation of your life is now really 
difficult for you. And so instead of having more secure tendencies, that, that anxious attachment starts to really kind of take over. And so it really depends on your, where you're at at life and also who you're dating. If you are, um, very anxious and you're drawn and you're l- more likely going to be drawn to someone who's very avoidant, um, because the, the attach, the, the different attachment styles are drawn to each other, anxious to avoidant, avoidant to anxious. Um, that's going to actually make you more and more anxious. But if you have an anxious attachment style and you date someone who's secure, they're mm-hmm. able to kind of go through those ups and downs. And in those moments where you're feeling self-conscious and you might need more check-ins or whatnot, instead of being like, oh my gosh, you're suffocating me, like what an avoidant would react to you, they'd be like, oh, I understand what you're going through. Okay, let's work through this together. Um, and so I think it's a combination. I think it's it's really the goal is to be, whether you're anxiously attached or avoidantly attached, they're two sides of the same coin. They both are rooted in a fear of intimacy. One fears that intimacy is going to suffocate them. And one fears that intimacy is going to abandon them. And so it is a dysregulation of, of, you know, the nervous system. And, and so I think the goal is whether you're anxious or avoidant is to become more secure, um, not to become more like your partner. And so I think that there's individual work that needs to be done in that. And then when you're in a relationship, like I used to, I struggled with my anxious attachment. I was probably very severe until I realized like it was ruining all of my relationships because I would sabotage. I would create these coping mechanisms um, where I would hedge and I would try to reject people before they could reject me. And, um, you know, once I realized that this was my pattern and I couldn't just keep blaming everyone, um, I really sought to get help on this and I made it my goal to, to shift my anxious attachment. And then when I was dating people, I would be upfront. I'd be like, Hey, just so you know, I struggle with this. These are the few things that trigger me. I'm not saying that this is your problem. This is something I'm moving through, but I want to let you know, um, so that you understand. And that would bring up a conversation. Um, and so I think that you can have, you know, an insecure attachment and still be in a very healthy, loving partnership. I really appreciate that. So I, it's funny because alongside your book, I was rereading um, Robert Greene's book, The Art of Seduction, which was an interesting <laughs> contrast right, to like read, you know, one book that basically looks at it through sort of the lens of persuasion and, and you know, in a lot of ways, what comes across as manipulation. And I guess, you know, in the context is that I, there's one quote that always stays with me from that book. And, and it's, you know, from some uh, courtesan, some French courtesan who said, love doesn't die of starvation, it dies of indigestion. Um, <laughs> and that always stayed with me because I always thought, okay, so then how do you resolve that paradox of, you know, having this, you know, anxious attachment style coupled with that notion? Um, And also, I I think that, you know, people read that and it ends up, you know, leading to a lot of people, you know, sort of trying to play games. I know this because I will pretty much wall people off the moment I get the sense that, oh, they're pulling away. So I'm just going to be, you know, a lot colder and more ignorant Mm -hmm. to see, you know, like just, you know, evasive to see if it changes the dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I had a, a dating coach told me, he said, dude, he's like, they're going to be people who are actually going to thrive on that. And he said, and those are the people you don't want to be dating. Totally. Right. If, if you being dismissive and hot and cold and not that interested in treating someone, not that well is what draws someone to you. If they're like, Oh my God, that's attractive. That's a big indicator that person's unhealthy. Right. I mean, I used to be that I used to be so drawn to 
avoidant people and people who put me on fifth on the priority list. I mean, this is completely a mirror of my dynamic with my father. Um, but I was drawn to that, right? I was drawn to these unhealthy dynamics because inside I what my emotional health level wasn't that healthy. And as I became healthier, um, and I'm, you probably have noticed this as well with all the work you've done on yourself. Like, that just becomes a turnoff. Like what used to be a turn on is now like, Oh, like games, like I, I don't have time for that. That's gross. And then you just kind of move along. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is, uh, I, I really love that you're, you're bringing this up because it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think we spend a lot of time thinking about. So one thing you just alluded to was this idea that, you know, this other person isn't the first priority. Now, the other thing you mentioned earlier is that, you know, people lose themselves in relationships. Like I see this all the time with friends where basically they are joined at the hip with the person they're with. Like you don't see them without the other person. It's like, I, you know, I had a friend who was in a really, you know, what looked like an amazing relationship, which turned out to be incredibly toxic. And, you know, I remember after the breakup, I was like, you guys were a package deal. I don't think I've ever hung out with you once where it was just the two of us um, since mm-hmm. you've been dating him or uh, since you were dating him. And you know, so there's this balance, right? Because obviously it's attractive to have your own stuff going on. Even Mark Manson in one of his books, he said, you know, the best way to get in a relationship is to, you know, have something better to do than searching, constantly looking for a relationship. (laughs) So how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I see it all the time, how people start off independent, right? It's not like you get it, you date someone and you're like, oh, I'm just going to now completely merge with you and be codependent and just never leave your side. It happens very slowly. It happens, you know, that first weekend where you're like, oh, you know, I did have these plans with my friends, but you know, like this is the only time they have available. I'm just going to change my plans. Right. It's, it's very, very slowly where we do these gradual things that kind of make us merge into someone else. And usually it's one person does it more than the other. Um, and, and so I think it's really important for people to understand, like, do you have more codependent tendencies? And, and like with that whole pie thing, you draw a circle and then you actually draw like, what is the ideal balance of your pie? And how does that look like that you can do this, whether you're in a relationship now or before you even get into one. And maybe you see there, there's a slice of pie for education, for community, for whatever it is. And that you kind of use that as something that you visually look at to keep yourself in check. And I've actually had to do this. Like I know for me, I have, I'm secure now, but I have anxious tendencies because that was my attachment style growing up. Um, and my partner is secure, but he has more avoidant. So he needs a lot of independence. I need a lot of connection. But what I do is I have to make sure like sometimes like, oh, I'm, I'm doing that thing where I'm about to merge. Like I'm changing my plans around because like, I know he's available only these times. So like, I will then go against what is just natural for me, which is to merge into someone else and be like, nope, I got to be really disciplined, have my own workout, have my own community time, have my own thing and, and kind of do that enough. So that becomes your norm. Um, but yeah, I think that if you have these patterns, you actually have to be more diligent, more intelligent, and more disciplined 
in making sure that you keep that balance. I also see people who are unbalanced um, and have more codependent tendencies to overgive. And so what starts off as an even dynamic, um, then they're like, oh, well, I like this person so much. And then there's these ideas like I need to earn that love. Um, then they give more. And then what happens? They're like, oh, that person isn't giving. And so they end up taking three steps for every one step that they're taking. And then there's this uneven power dynamic, which eventually erupts and the relationship crumbles. Wow. Okay. So let's talk um, specifically about boundaries. You know, you say by not expressing your needs and your limits to your partner, you set them up for failure, which triggers your natural instinct for creating distance to avoid reaching this point. It's important that you communicate clearly. Now, one of the things I know from some of the women I've dated is money has al- has come up as an issue. Like I had an ex-girlfriend who basically her idea of me treating her well was $400 every, you know, $400 dinners every weekend, you know, and things that I basically couldn't afford. And because I had no boundaries, I pretty much put our entire relationship on a credit card until we Mm. broke up. Um, and you know, I never was willing to, to step up and say like, I I can't do this. And I wasn't willing to end the relationship because I was afraid of being alone. Mm. So, uh, Yeah. So there's that. Now, one thing I remember having a a conversation with a friend about boundaries uh, and we're talking about this. It's like, you know, the first time you do it, you feel like, oh, great, I'm expressing my boundaries. And then the reaction from the other person isn't good. Mm. So you're like, shit, that's what's going to turn out if I express my boundaries. So how do we how do we you know resolve those two two issues? Yeah, I think there's two things at play, right? One is actually the work on self and and feeling whole enough as a human being and that you are enough, right? And that's probably, you know, a forever journey. Um, but when we don't feel that, then we feel like, oh my gosh, we can't express ourselves because we're just going to get abandoned. And so we're willing to submit or edit ourselves in order for someone to like us because there's a root belief there that I'm not enough as I am. And so I think that's really important. You can't just kind of uh, change your behavior um, and then and not look at the inside because the root of it is your beliefs. So there's that work that needs to be done. And then there's a practice of the boundaries. And, and part of that is there needs to be, you know, this, a boundary is something that if it's crossed, that there is a, a consequence to that. And, you know, if crossed enough, or if that boundary is a big one and it was crossed and you have to be willing to be able to walk away from that relationship. And now there's a big difference between building boundaries and building walls. Sometimes we build a wall as a way to cope um, and to protect ourselves, but boundaries are porous. It can be a negotiation. It can be a collaboration. And so I think like learning how to communicate and, and express yourself is really important. I've had friends who have been, you know, they never were able to set boundaries their entire life. And then they, you know, learn, read some book and they're like, okay, I'm going to do these boundaries. And then they would come across with these boundaries as like super hard and, and aggressive. And the person on the other side is already on the defense and there's no way that conversation is going to go well. But I think you can state your boundaries without it being such a confrontation, confrontational conversation. It could be like, Hey, like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I prefer. Like, what are your, what do you feel about that? Are you open to that? And making it a dialogue and, and a collaborative conversation. Um, I think that could be a great 
you know, approach. And then also starting with small stakes. Don't, if you are someone who's never been able to state your boundaries, I would not go and, and have a high stakes conversation as your first one. I would start small. I would start by, you know, maybe calling your credit card company and seeing if you can get your credit raised, right? These tiny conversations, maybe it's you went to a restaurant, you didn't like your food and normally you just kind of suck it up. But then you, you talk to the manager and you say something about it. You start with small stakes and you grow your muscle for being able to communicate your boundaries and your needs. It's funny you say that because I remember talking to a friend about this on the podcast and she was like, Srini, your mother? She was like, no, that's not how you start this conversation about <laughs> boundaries. She was like, that's the one place you don't want to start. I was like, good point. She's like, start with something easy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about what I think was my absolute favorite part of the book. Um, and that is this whole idea of fantasy, because um, this was me. I mean, this was me in every way possible. Like I literally I remember when I was dating this girl long distance, I'd even crafted the the screenplay out in my head. It was going to be called Love in you know, 20 cities. Like we would meet in you know one city every month and we made it to three cities and she broke up with me. And I was like, that was like the ultimate wake up call of, wow, I am living in a fairy tale world. And a friend of mine said, you have this Disney movie idealized version of love. And you said, here's what those fairy tales, romantic movies and love songs create a culture of women shattered by love. We have unrealistic expectations of what it is to love and be loved. For most people, what we call love today can be categorized as variations upon certain themes we experience as adolescents, intense lust and longing, attraction and novelty and excitement, the desire to possess and idealize, and the hope of feeling special when chosen. Um, so let, let's talk about this. Why is this so common? Um, and do you think it's more common for women than it is for men? Because like I said, this was me in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's the difference between the genders and, and how common it is. I know it was me in a nutshell growing up too. I think we read the same fairy tales. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with like the stories that we are, are read, you know, that we read from a very young age, the fairy tales, the movies, the love songs. I mean, look at, I mean, Romeo and Juliet, that's your OG, you know, love story. And like, and, and that's not love. Like these, they met each other and within 48 hours, they were going to kill themselves for each other for this idea of love. And so you don't know that you are taking in all these messages from culture, from pop culture, from stories, and they are building your ideas and your expectations of what love is. And so I think that you know, in North America, there is a lot of issues with people who expect this fantasy and they expect that love is this kind of chemically fueled, like, oh my God, I, I look across the room and I, I want to rip off their clothes sort of thing. And it's very romantic, but it's not realistic. And I know for myself, I also, because I had a very chaotic upbringing, um, I escaped into fantasy. So that was a coping mechanism for me to deal with the tumultuous, you know, fights that were happening at home. And so, um, you know, I think all these things sets up a generation of people who get really disappointed in love. And, you know, for myself, being disappointed in enough times and then learning about like, wait a minute, this isn't love. Oh, this is borderline love addiction. Oh, now I start to understand that started having me actually challenge those beliefs. And so I think it's super important for people to, again, I talked about it in the beginning, 
change our definitions uh, of what love is, of what a successful relationship is. There's still this notion of happily forever after. You know, call me, I don't, you can say I'm jaded or just uh, that I'm a realist. I don't believe in forever. I, I think you could stay with someone for a very long time and that might mean that you, you know, die of old age together, but I don't use forever as my benchmark of success. And so I think that relationships are are here for many different reasons. And sometimes they are here to teach us what you don't want so that you can finally create an opening to explore what you do want, right? You talk about that girl who won a $400 dinners. That is a person who does not know what love is. It's a transactional thing. Um, and she has a dysfunctional relationship with money and love. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes I think we need to go through these things to learn. And sometimes people don't learn and their entire lives, they are in either these relationships that are, you know, not satisfying, but that's all that they know. Um, so that they think that's love. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because when my sister met her husband, I, I think her description was kind of the exact same. She's like, maybe, you know, you just don't find those butterflies when you get older. And that ended up being the guy that she married. And I think that, you know, for both of us, it was like, no, because that's actually not love. Like that's, you know, what we're taught to believe is love, but is not. Um, I think you may have read it. Um, my friend Rachel Resnick wrote this book called Love Junkie. And I remember telling her that I was like, I just want that like, you know, buzz. And she was like, Oh God, she was like, you're a total love junkie. And mm -hmm. I didn't, and I remember I refused to read her book at the time. Cause I was like, it's going to hit too close to home. But now mm -hmm. I think, you know, six years later, I'm like, yeah, you were spot on about that. It's, it's taken me a long time to come to terms with that because I mean, you know, in Hollywood, you know, you have these beautiful endings, you have movies like serendipity where, you know, some guy meets a girl he met seven years ago and like this, you know, really poetic story unfolds. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it would make for a really boring movie if they showed the everyday, the doing the dishes, like the changing of the diapers, <laughs> like what happens in the lull when you don't want to have sex with someone, like, which happens, like the reality of relationships is not shown at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, let's let's talk about sex in particular. I think the the thing that struck me most and I remember, you know, and this is really not easy for a guy to hear. I remember my therapist was like, look, he said, if you actually want to have a healthy relationship, I recommend that you don't have sex with this person as soon as possible. And I was like, John, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard um, at the time. And then I finally started to realize I was like, yeah, the moment you start sleeping with somebody, you stop seeing them objectively. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So this is controversial, right? Because in this day and age, um, we want to be like independent women, like hear us roar, do anything like, you know, sport fuck. And, you know, for a while when I w grew up watching Sex in the City, I was like, I want to be like Samantha. I'm just going to have sex for fun and like use these guys. And, and it was very falsely empowering because it actually didn't come from, uh, a root of like self-worth or abundance or confidence. It came from a place of actually major insecurity. And so it actually didn't help me, especially having an anxious attachment style. I would have sex with people and feel so attached to them and completely devastated when they didn't like me back. And so I think it's, you know, learning about the different chemicals that do happen is important, right? Like when, um, 
when a woman and a man have sex and there's an orgasm, the man will have a lot of testosterone, which can blunt out the effects of oxytocin um, and vasopressin, which is the bonding chemical. Um, whereas a woman, when she has an orgasm, she gets an increase of oxytocin um, and less testosterone. So she is more prone to bond. And so, of course, this isn't everyone. And there's a ton of people out there that can have sex with no strings attached. Amazing. But I think it's important for all of us to, to be honest with how are we with intimacy? And like, before we share the most intimate parts of ourselves, like, have we been able to build up some sort of connection? Um, and, and trying that approach to see if the other approach didn't work. Yeah. Well, I think for me, I came to the realization, you know, as, as annoying as it was, I was like, wow, if I am really into somebody, I cannot have sex with them without getting emotionally attached to them. Um, mm. that really struck me, but so there's one uh, section in the book where you talk about the story of, um, you know, a guy who was a friend that you got to know and started to soon find attractive. And I wanted to talk about that because, you know, there's this common sort of terminology among guys known as the friend zone. And we, we joke about it, right? Like the, there, when I read that, I couldn't help but thinking of this episode of friends where, you know, Ross is like crazy in love with Rachel and, and, you know, um, he's trying to convince Joey that he's not in the friend zone. And he's like, what are you talking about, dude? You're the mayor of the zone. He's like, and the friend zone is like prison. You're never getting out of it. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, uh, can you talk about that and sort of this attraction spectrum idea? Yeah, I totally disagree that once you are in the friend zone, you're in a prison of it, uh, because I'm an example of, of how that changed. So, and I do, I, in what I've observed, it's different for men and women. I think that, um, in what I've seen that, when a woman is like, oh, this is a friend, um, it is possible for her feelings to change through time. I have seen less of that in a man seeing a woman and feeling absolutely no chemistry or attraction towards her for that to change. But I've, I've seen some examples, but generally speaking. So sometimes it takes time for you to cognitively process that the chemistry is romantic. And that is the example that I discussed in my book with this guy named Carter, where I did an experiment because what I call your chemistry compass, which is your internal GPS that points you in the direction of who you're drawn to and who you're repulsed by. Um, if our, if we didn't have a healthy, you know, model of love growing up or, you know, early experiences that weren't healthy, we, we can actually break our chemistry compass. So it starts pointing us in the direction of people who can wound us. And so the people were like, Oh my God, I feel this attraction chemistry to, um, are actually very unhealthy people. They're just strife with wounding patterns. So I was like, okay, my chemistry compass is broken because I'm constantly drawn to people who are, you know, unavailable who actually don't even like me. And so when I did this experiment and this guy named Carter, like right off the bat, like he was not my type. He was an introvert, you know, and kind of nerdy. And I said, I'm like, Hey, I, I don't feel an attraction towards you, but if you want to hang out as homies, like, cool. And he just really genuinely was like, yeah, like, I think you're an awesome human. I want to get to know you. That's totally cool. I never felt pressure with him. And so when I was doing this dating experiment where I would be open to dating people I didn't feel chemistry with, um, building up my tolerance of and familiarity with what healthy felt like. Um, eight months into the experiment, I'm hanging out with Carter and I was like, oh, like you're hot. And, you know, I think what happened was a combination of, of all those people that I dated 
who were healthy, it started making me familiar. Oh, this is what healthy feels like. So it wasn't so foreign to me. And number two is I had chemistry with Carter in the sense like I enjoyed hanging out with him, um, but I didn't know it was romantic. And I think through time, I just really came to appreciate his character and his values. And all of that came together and it sparked attraction. And there's three different mating drives in the brain, all which can create love, right? There's lust, which is driven by testosterone. There's um, attraction, which is driven by dopamine. And then there's bonding and attachment, which is driven by oxytocin and vasopressin. Love can be sparked by any of these pathways. And so we're familiar with the lust, right? Like you meet someone, oh my God, you feel it. And then it turns into, you know, a relationship and bonding, but uh, it can go the other way around. Okay. So on the flip side of that, what about the guy who spends years pining after the girl who happens to be his friend that he's totally in love with, but ends up basically wasting his life waiting for it to come around and it never does? I, I think that person is not in reality. I, you know, I think the difference is like, if you actually are like, wow, this person's awesome. I want to be your friend. Um, then that's great. But if you are stuck in, in a kind of an obsession over this person, you're pining and you're not making space for other people, that is like, you need to take a realistic look at your life. And that might even mean like you detox from that person so that you can allow that time and space for you to kind of recalibrate. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't suggest like if there's someone that is your friend that you have feelings for and that person's like not interested, I don't say that you kind of make that your mission to change their mind. I am really glad you said that because I, you know, I mean, in the last few years that I've dated, I've had girls be like, oh, if you're interested in hanging out with friends and I've been happy to tell them not, nah, to be honest, I'm actually not. Um, mm-hmm. I have no interest in being your friend. I uh, like, not that, you know, there's anything wrong with you, but you know, I'm not interested in being your friend. I'm looking to meet somebody. So um, Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to be okay with telling people that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's totally okay too. Like, I mean, I I think through dating, like there's some people that you're like, wow, you're awesome. And I want you in my life. And then there's some like, no, like if this isn't actually going into a romantic thing, I don't want to keep investing in that. I have enough friends and like, that's totally fine. Cool. All right. So um, there's one last part of the book. And I, I think I, I really love this line. You said, you know, our greatest lesson in this lifetime is to practicing, just to practice opening our hearts, even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. Opening our hearts is a constant practice of choosing compassion over judgment, softening over hardening, love over fear. And I think that, you know, when we get our hearts broken, we almost do the exact opposite mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so why is that? And how do we not do that? I think when we inherently don't feel that we are safe, we need to build a wall. That's when we go to the extremes of coping, right? Suddenly we're like, I don't ever want to date again. Like you're frustrated with the apps or you got ghosts and you're like, I don't want to do this again. I'm never, you know, I'd rather be single. Um, And these are all coping mechanisms and, and creating these walls around your heart is it's not a solution. It's just a way that you're dealing with the pain. And I, I think that when you learn the tools to, you know, emotionally regulate, when you, you know, build your, your muscles of resilience, you realize like you are inherently safe and you will get back up. And so I think that changes the way that you approach love because, even if you love fully, truly, deeply, and that doesn't work out, you know that, yeah, you'll go through, you know, a time where you're hurt and you're going to grieve it and you'll get back up. 
And so when you don't know that though, when you don't inherently feel safe and you base your identity on all these external things, then you're like, no, I can't handle a breakup. I can't handle rejection. It, it's, it's going to destroy me. And so, yeah, that's what I mean by that. I, I, um, you know, the, five years ago, I, I had to close up my heart. Like I just felt so delicate and fragile and I associated love with pain. And a lot of this was subconscious. I, I would say I, I wanted a relationship, but if you looked at my behavior, I didn't. And it wasn't really until I went through enough of like doing the self work and healing, you know, a lot of these, these wounds that have been kicking around for decades and getting to a place where I know I am safe. And even though I'm in a loving partnership now, I know that if it wasn't going to work out one day to, according to plan, I would be okay. And there will, will be another person. This is totally different from what I used to think. I used to be like, no, this person's the only one for me. And if this doesn't work <laughs> out, I'm fucked. Right. Yeah. Like, and now I'm just, I have a much more realistic approach. Been, yep. Been there, done that. Um, well, this has been absolutely amazing. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, um, oh, wow. Great question. <sighs> Let's see. Can you ask me that question again? Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think truly being you to the best of your ability. And that means not a projection or a presentation of you. Um, we are all special. We are all made of love. And I think that we, life happens and we create these personas and different identities and projections of who we think we need to be. And that's who we present. Um, but if we just actually present ourselves as, as who we are, um, and we have an open heart and we, we leave people better than how we found them. Um, I think that makes you absolutely unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work and everything that you're up to? Yeah. Uh, my website's renewbreakupbootcamp.com and my book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart is available at all bookstores. And on social, I'm at Miss Amy Chan. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.